all of the sudden I'm back in Sarajevo, I'm 15, the war is starting, and I'm seeing myself on this screen, those images that are flowing, the war, what's happening in Ukraine, the people, their testimonies, the language is so familiar to mine. I was shocked. I was completely in shock for two weeks. I had a feeling like I have to go, I have to do so, like I have to run. And it took me a while to realize, okay, I'm here, I'm safe. It's not actually me who's living through it. For a moment, it just pulled me back into something, somewhere where I, I never thought I'd be again. You're listening to Asylum Speakers, The Journey. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. For this very special season of the podcast, we followed common migration routes taken by refugees and asylum seekers from Africa, the Middle East and Ukraine, all the way through Europe, documenting stories along the way. We spent time with people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers and staff working alongside them and the host communities in each of the migration hotspots we visited. Many of the people we spoke to along this journey are being supported by projects funded by Comic Relief's Across Borders programme, which, thanks to the donations from the UK public, invest in organisations supporting refugees and asylum seekers along these routes. These first-hand accounts are here to educate, inspire and debunk some of the common myths and misconceptions around migration today. Listen carefully because... For many of these people, this podcast is the first opportunity they've had for their important story to be heard. Join us as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. Welcome to the final episode of The Journey, a six-part podcast series following migration routes from Africa, the Middle East and Ukraine to Northern Europe. So far this season, we've explored the reasons why people are leaving their countries. We've taken a look at what life looks like in the first safe country they arrive to. We've delved into the risks that they face along their journeys, and we've heard about people being pushed back along the way. In last week's episode, we explored what life looks like for people in their new host country once their journeys have come to an end. But it's actually this last episode that I've been very excited to share with you all. Today's episode is designed to speak to that rhetoric that refugees or asylum seekers might be a burden that they take from us, economically, culturally, or whatever that fear might be. I'm honoured to be able to share multiple examples of how much we have to gain from welcoming refugees and asylum seekers with open arms. This episode came to be because along the journey we met many people working in grassroots refugee response who had lived experience of migration themselves. By this I mean refugees, people who have been displaced themselves, going on to then support others in the same situation. So this episode is about those inspirational people, turning their struggle into something incredible, going full circle and using their knowledge, expertise and depth of understanding through personal experience to give back to their community. This episode is in honour of them. 
first of all, let's head back to Lebanon, where I met the most incredible organisation called The Great Oven. The Great Oven was set up by Noor and James, and Noor is Lebanese and James is Spanish-Irish, but brought up in the UK. And they build giant ovens and donate them to communities who need them. I first met Nora and James in their headquarters in Beirut. And as you guys know, I love Beirut. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. You probably got that through this season so far. But I'd never been to their headquarters. And as I approached it, I was immediately in love. It's like at the end of this tree-lined street in a very buzzy, happening neighborhood in Beirut. And uh, I just saw the most beautifully colourful, intricately painted building and through the window I could see this magical ornate giant oven standing like in the middle of the space. I hung out with James and Noor in Beirut for a bit and during our trip in Lebanon they also took us to see one of their ovens in action. So we were lucky enough early one very cold snowy morning to head with them to the Lebanese Syrian border to an area called the Bekar Valley to meet an incredible Syrian lady called Rauda, who is running their community oven there. So Rauda is responsible for feeding 180 families, uh, Syrian, Palestinian and Lebanese families in her area, who would otherwise struggle to have enough food. So today we will hear from James, Noor and Rauda. But first, hear Noor and James to give some context on how this all came to be. So what is The Great Oven? We're an initiative, we're a group of people that come from different backgrounds and are mainly trying to basically do food relief. Second is creating opportunities, especially for people from marginalised backgrounds, basically using the oven as sort of something that we can come around. James, it was a vision that you had, right? It's a vision that we kind of both had together. So I think it really started for me from, from my mother her village in Spain had a town oven. And uh, hearing stories from my grandmother and my mum my and aunties about this, I just thought, God, wouldn't it be fantastic to live in a place where the town had an oven? It was the heart of the community. It's where everybody gathered. Uh, you'd, you'd have your casserole pot on your way to work and you'd drop it off at the town oven or you'd make bread there and then later in the day you'd come and pick it up. And if families needed a bit of extra food or were going without, and then everyone would scoop and take a couple of spoons out of theirs and, and, and give it. And I just thought, God, you know, this is something we've been doing for ages, but there's a hell of a lot we can learn from that. We have that in Lebanon as well. And here, um, sort of every neighborhood, so they obviously started in villages, but it did extend to Beirut as well, where, you know, you've got these ovens um, and then you go, you can, you can either buy bread from there, but you can also take your own stuff and make them there and put them in the sort of like neighborhood oven. I used to do that with my grandmother. And because it was the place where everybody gathered, mainly the women, my grandmother used to always tell me if she'd hear me talk too much or as if I'm gossiping or something, she'd be like, um, Noor, why are you talking like the women of the oven? So, but mainly it's because it's where the whole neighborhood or the whole village gathers. And this is where the gossip was happening. Yeah. The news. The, the news. Yeah, exactly. news of the town. <laughs> the talk of the town. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the start and how it kind of came to be. Our idea was to see if food could bring people together, you know, how much we have in common when we sit around a table. So um, we went to a place that had, had seen many years of conflict, the north of Lebanon in uh, a city called Tripoli. 
to see if we could get the guys who'd participated in finding cooking together and um, started creating this oven that we wanted to be as a kind of symbol of peace. One of the first feasts that we did, it was a big feast for the ex-fighters and the Lebanese army, mm. and a lot of them who'd actually wow. would have been involved in, in, in arresting these guys. Oh. And it was, yeah, really being thrown in at the deep end and seeing in action sort of the food. Literally bringing people together. Bring, bringing these people together. And that was something that we then wanted to kind of take around the country. Noor, tell me more about Rauda, who runs your community oven on the Syrian-Lebanese border in the Bekaa Valley. Rauda, where do you want me to start? <laughs> so yeah, currently Rauda is leading a team of about four women, incredible women from different parts um, of the region, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria. Each one has her own story. Each one is an amazing survivor in her own way. They started off running uh, the great oven and kitchen in the Bika. Mm -hmm. They feed about, I think in total, they've got about 350 families that they feed uh, daily. So they cook Monday to Friday. Recently, Rada decided that she wanted to expand a little bit and uh, sort of uh, offer some kind of support. Rauda being herself uh, like a child bride and a victim of domestic violence. From her own story and from her own experience and the things that she understood, she wanted to share that with other women. She wanted to be these women's support or these women's sort of safe space. So now she's added, so there's the kitchen and right next to the kitchen, there is sort of this safe space where the women come and she gives them like uh, sessions and she is a refugee so herself. She's from Homs, she's from Syria, mm. she's got five daughters. Yeah. She escaped with them. This is the impressive thing about Rauda and what I love about Rauda specifically is she is a refugee. She arrived here. She was in the camp. She was, you know, seeing just how much she's achieved and how much, you know, how much talent she's ha she has and how much, you know, and it's, it's just the idea of like, yeah, you know, you just, you know, some, you just need to give people the right tools and they're going to do wonders because again, she's a refugee, but now she's feeding the community, Lebanese and non-Lebanese. You know, she's, uh, she's the reason why a lot of people are having access to food. A lot of uh, the, why, why the, why the women are now basically, they can support themselves with, you know, cause they're working. Why the other women as well are having a safe space. And it's just the idea of like, you know, stop. <laughs> stop seeing people as like burden or like oh mm -hmm. it's a refugee or oh it's a march or, or you know what I mean no it's you know it, there's a lot to gain we met her in in, in actually giving out food relief mm. and I mean you meet her immediately she's an absolute force of nature mm -hmm. and we've always been quite interested in how quickly somebody you know people like her you know refugee herself you meet a lot of these characters who are just cooking an extra five or ten meals doing what they can mm -hmm. and then we've always sort of thought can we give these guys an oven that can cook for, for many hundreds and you know she absolutely exemplifies that so many visits to camps when we have gone we we noticed the generosity in the refugees mm -hmm. community and you know you kind of always feel god i can't take food off a refugee and they're like you better take that mm -hmm. food off us because that's what makes us feel human so Rauda's story with The Great Oven is an amazing one. Not only was she supporting her own community with food from the oven, but when the devastating explosion hit Lebanon's capital city of Beirut in August 2020, Rauda decided that the people of Beirut needed the oven more than her and her community did, and she insisted that Noor and James take the oven to provide for the people there. 
our, our paths crossed with Rounder. But that was the most inspiring <laughs> bit of the story. I mean, the fact that this refugee said, you, you know what, Beirut needs the oven now. And we were like, gosh. And she, she prepared food, you know, refugees gathering clothes and, and water to, to donate to Beirut after the horrific explosion. And that's what sparked everything for us. We were like, gosh, that act of solidarity from a refugee to, to you know, the wealthiest metropolis in the, in the country has sparked absolutely everything. The ovens have a life of their own and they're completely just governed by yeah. incredible talent that, that they seem to attract. These ovens in Lebanon are used for manouche, Lebanese pizzas, and uh, I'm going to be killed by every single person in the Levant for saying that. For calling them Lebanese, Lebanese pizza. pizza. I think but, for our audience, like just for I the know, sake of our audience, who have maybe not all had the experience exactly, of a manouche. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so Lebanese pizzas and, um, and like bread. And it, it was, you know, it's trying to say like, okay, they're big enough for you to just put tons of trays in there and stack the trays on top of each other and just make, you know, cook stews, bake like, I don't know, 100 potatoes in there. You know, you can, in an hour... Literally 60 aubergines every 20 minutes. Every 20 minutes. You've got probably for thousands if you keep that rolling. Yeah. We then started talking about the future of the Great Oven and what James and Noor would like to see it grow into. They told me about their plans for the next oven to be in Colombia, potentially run by an indigenous woman from the Wayu tribe called Rita. But they were keen to reiterate that it would be Rauder that would be best place to guide Rita in how to go about feeding her community and that she would be an integral part of the onboarding process. Again, really inspired by Rauder. Like suddenly, you know, can we send an oven, that act of solidarity between uh, a refugee in the Bekaa to Beirut could, no one could ever expect something birthed in, in Lebanon considering what it's gone through. To, to actually affect some kind of food relief change internationally. Mm-hmm. And that's really it. This could be a gift from, from here to another place. Um, so we were very luckily invited to Colombia to, at the time, what was the second biggest migrant crisis, now third after Ukraine, the Colombia-Venezuela border. No one knows anything about that one. We were asked, you know, could, could this be replicated in the refugee camps of, of La Guajira on the Venezuelan border? And, uh, I mean, yes, it absolutely could. But I think what we've absolutely insisted on is that we need to take our crew with us because therein lies the real talent. And I think there's so much furore around, you know, people turning up to countries and not necessarily knowing what they're Mm. doing. There's obviously, you know, a big big subject matter around white saviors Mm. and and everything else. And we basically said, look, you know, who do you want to hear from in in, in a crisis? Who better than somebody who's walked in your shoes? So the fact is, you know, it's 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 Rauda and yeah. it's our gang. They're going to be taking mm-hmm. the great oven as our representatives, as international ambassadors, and they're not going to be travelling as refugees. They're going to be travelling as experts. So the plan is, yeah, to to, to move to move the project to Colombia, uh, and then after that, create a big network around the world of of, of people, of sort of these these big generous acts of solidarity. Mm-hmm. James, what do you think it is about food? Is there anything more that you would like to share about how you have seen food act as such a kind of vehicle for solidarity and connection? I think as a starting point, it's the only thing that we as humans, every single one of us does. 
it's the thing that causes the biggest opinions and and people argue massively i mean you're terrified that the, the minutia has been referred to as a lovely speaker <laughs> it's the thing that, that that inflames excites what you rely on for your existence and it's the thing that, that people are most passionate about and i think it's it's also a big flag carrier for people you know uh, it's a thing people take you know we, we work with displaced people it's a taste of home. It's um, more than any other character trait. I think you know it's 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 an act that can immediately transport you to a place, and and it works on so many levels that you know the very act of gifting this thing to someone and sustaining you. I don't think there's anything that can compare to it. I think also how it is used in terms of exclusivity around food and how it's exploited. Uh, it's something, yeah, that, that that moves people. But I think we've got a lot of things wrong with it. And, uh, you know, I, I can't believe we, we can feed every animal that, that, that provides meat for the planet, but we can't seem to feed 7 billion humans. And I think our relationship with food and the exclusivity of dining scenes and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, Nora and I get to a point now, I don't think any of the te- top 10 meals I've ever had in my life have come from a restaurant. And these are some of the, you know, a lot of those meals have come from here. You know, Noor's mother, Rauda. I'd love to bring that talent into the into the conversation a lot more uh, than, than is respected. I hate that sort of shouty chefs are the, are the custodians mm. of, 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 you know, uh, the zeitgeist of food. I think it's completely mental. We've got an opportunity to change things. I think it's quite mad that within 20 minutes you can order just about any cuisine from most of the world to your phone, but we eat alone. I've heard you guys talking about what it was like. You know, you, you live in cities with, with so many dozens of families around you and we're all spending hundreds of pounds a week on food that we end up throwing away. And, you know, for us, the great oven is a big exercise in, in sharing resources and sharing those uh, precious food moments with with other humans. And I think there's room to create a, a new space. I'd love to see a great oven, you know, in the UK built around food banks and it not be, you know, the depressive um, attitude people have towards food, sort of soup kitchens and, oh, cooking for homeless people. It's like, no, no, we can, we can make this fun. It's good. Mm. <laughs> it's fun. You can make it colourful. As, you know, music, art and food. Like, what more do you need? What more do you need? Like, we've got so much to learn. I was really thinking that when uh, Rauda, we were eating lunch with her today because I feel like when I think back to the UK, going around for dinner to somebody's house, it's quite a big deal, I feel. Mm. At least it's made into a big deal, right? It's like, come for dinner next Friday. It's in the diary. And then, like, you kind of feel that, like, oh, yeah, they invited us around, so now it's our turn to invite them around. And it's just a kind of exchange that I feel doesn't, exist here that mm-hmm. here it's like no come come eat please eat whereas yeah in the UK it's not it's not that and again that's something that I think yeah I'm so grateful to have experience because I want to embody that and bring that with me wherever I go because food tastes better that way yeah definitely so you've heard it from Nora and James but it's now time to hear it from Rauda. We recorded this next interview sitting on floor cushions in Rauda's living room around the fireplace in the centre of the room with an absolute feast of food between us. Rauda speaks Arabic in this interview, so Noor translated for us. And I started by asking Rauda to introduce herself and to explain what was happening that day because it was a special day that we were there. 
She said, so she name is Rabda Rauda. Uh, she said that today we've got two things happening. First thing is uh, we're going to be cooking in the kitchen for and to, to distribute. And this is something that we do every single day except for Saturdays and, and Sundays. And the second thing that we are doing, it just happens that today is Mother's Day. So we are going to be honoring 25 mothers. And she said that some mothers are basically, because maybe they don't have anybody to come to, to basically celebrate them today. And the other chunk is part of our, um, our other program, which is called Female Revolutionaries, where we actually try to break all of the stereotypes of the of the, of the com- of sort of society around community and I want to honor these women because they are doing a revolution for themselves against certain things and trying to break certain barriers and and I want to celebrate them for that too. She's, a, she's, a, she's from Syria. She's a mother of five girls. Um, in, um, when the war started, obviously, she got, she, got, she, she got divorced, took her girls, and then she was basically moving around a lot within Syria. So they were basically internal refugees first. And then they, they, they arrived uh, to Lebanon. In Lebanon, they were living in a camp. She said that 2014 to 2015 was one of the worst sort of year of her life. Um, they were living in a camp. Uh, they, there was nothing. She didn't even have a door for that entire year. So there was no privacy, any of that. Rauda, how did you first get involved in the Great Oven? She was saying that at the beginning of COVID and there was a Ramadan coming and people were really sort of struggling with being able to to eat, being able to find, you know, because of uh, because of lockdown and everything. And um, we had met before because we were uh, through someone else because we were basically d- distributing food. She basically said, look, I want to I want to cook some food. I want to make some. Tell me about when you re-donated the oven after the explosion in Beirut. She said, unfortunately, um, our presence is usually needed in, uh, in, in bad crisis situations. But if she really wanted to help out, they made about 300 manouches, uh, you know, the sort of the pizza, those pizzas, uh, water, uh, face masks. Um, and, and then she called me and she's like, look, I think that, uh, that Beirut definitely needs the oven uh, way more than the Bekaa does. We can get another one, we can get it later, but right now it needs to go there. And she said, we got the food, we packed the oven, packed the food and, and sent it right straight to Beirut. Whether it's the war in Syria, it's like if we're not, if we don't build it ourselves, we can't go up and build Syria. Or, for example, when the Beirut blast happened, there were so many of these initiatives that were going on. Just and even just people going there and saying, "What can I do?" and just or just picking up glass from the floor. Mm-hmm. And you know, she's like, "These are you know, sort of the this is this is the response to thing. You kind of just you can't just sit sit there with your arms crossed and be like, oh." This is happening, you know, and she said that she said that there's a saying that she loves that goes, um, you build people before building nations. So it's beautiful because that that that, you know, no borders.
For the next segment of this podcast, we are heading to Paris, where I'm very happy to introduce you to an old friend of mine, Danica. Danica is a refugee herself from Sarajevo, and I met her in Paris in 2016, where she lives and does amazing work to support unaccompanied minors in the city. I've looked up to her approach when it comes to refugee response for years. She's personal, dedicated and determined, and it's an honour to finally have her as a guest on the podcast. In all of our years of doing things together, like finding places for unaccompanied kids to sleep for the night and cooking meals for Ramadan and organising haircuts on park benches and all sorts, uh, this was actually the first time that I have ever sat down and heard Danica tell her own story of fleeing her city of Sarajevo when she was 15. We recorded this in Paris uh, on the last stop of our journey before going for late night Tunisian food. And Danica began by telling me how the recent war in Ukraine had triggered some deep emotion in her. All of a sudden, I'm back in Sarajevo. I'm 15. The war is starting. And I'm seeing myself on this screen, on those images that are flowing, the war, what's happening in Ukraine, the people, their testimonies. The language is so familiar to mine. I was shocked. I was completely in shock for two weeks. I had a feeling like I have to go, I have to do so, like I have to run. And it took me a while to realize, okay, I'm here, I'm safe, this is my routine. This is not actually me who's living through it. Those are the echoes I lived through it. For a moment, it just got, just pulled me back into something, somewhere where I, I never thought I'd be again. You triggered something in you. <laughs> wow. I don't think I've ever asked you this, but do you think that it's your own experiences as a teenager that have always informed your work that you do with unaccompanied minors and with refugees? Of course, that's like my, that's where yeah. I'm myself, that's what I know. You know, like refugee camp for me, it's, it's my home. Problems of isolated refugee minors, that's where I recognize myself, that's, the, that's something I know the best. So you can just ignore all the education and experience I have in other... That's what I know, that's who I am. If I have to identify myself, I would say I'm a refugee. And it's not about my documents, it's about the entire experience I've been through. That's where my empathy, my understanding, my interest goes normally, organically, I don't know. I don't have to think about it, it just goes there. And how much do you want or like to share about your story? I like to share my story, mm-hmm. I like to talk about it. I think it's important because what I've lived through, people now are going through again. And they're taking their first steps in something that is horribly difficult and complicated. I understand very well what they're going through. I understand the fear, the, 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 the stress, the, the struggle. But um, many of them not all of them, they're not still aware what's happened to them. They think they're going to go back home mm-hmm. when the war finish and that they're going to take their lives back as they were. And that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. The biggest challenge, the biggest epiphany, realization of their own existence mm-hmm. is yet to be lived through. This is the first step, this is the first phase. This is the first thing that war does, and it's horrible. To whatever they go back to, things are never gonna be the same. 
war does not only destroy buildings and cities and you know infrastructure it destroys the fiber of a society it destroys families it destroys the relationships between people it destroys your own identity it is so much bigger on the level of destruction and what they need to rebuild afterwards what they have to rebuild to be themselves again it's not only going to be buildings and cities and infrastructure <laughs> they have to rebuild trust relationships between themselves between family members between society but also with the rest of the world and i do believe a lot of them feel maybe betrayed there are layers and layers onto it Danica, will you tell us the story of what happened when you were 15? <laughs> well, pretty much very similar to what you see now. So I was living my teenage years. I was going to high school. I was uh, having friends. I had all those teenager problems that were so big and horrible. So normal, so normal. Like the entire life was so normal. And I lived in the city that I really loved and I knew, and I, I had my family. I was safe. I had a safety that I didn't know I had. I realized that what I, what I had and when it was gone. So the war started in a way that I couldn't understand. Everything fell apart, people turned to each other. My city was sieged, bombed. Uh, there was fights in the street. I was shot at several times. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of riots. There was a lot of thefts. There was a lot of issues. First May to 1992, I was put in a bus. My mother told me, like, this is going to calm down. Everything's going to be okay. Just grab basic things and go. She gave me 300 Deutschmarks. Like that would be 150 euros today, maybe. And uh, I packed my bathing suit. I packed my plushie, like a little toy I had. It was, I was still 15, 16, but I still had a little toys. Some journals, one book, and uh, some clothes. And I was still wearing my boots because it was still kind of chilly. And they took me through the city and the center in front of the Hotel Holiday Inn. And I didn't even know in which bus I'm going to get on because there were buses going to Croatia, there was buses going to Belgrade. But the main thing was to get on a bus. Nobody cared. The mm -hmm. main thing was to get on a bus and get out of the city that was bombed each night. And they were only taking kids on those buses? Women and kids, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, it was in front of this Holiday Inn, and on the other side, there was like two iconic buildings in the city. It was called Momez Yuzair, that were bombed heavily, and there was glass, heavy bits, like really, like cubes of glass on the floor. And I remember grabbing a handful of it and putting it in my pocket, and I carried that for me for years. Like, I, ha I had to take something, I felt like. I didn't want to go. I was crying before I got on the bus, and uh, <laughs> I was just pushed onto it. That trip was horrible. <laughs> it was so frightening. We saw so many things that were destroyed. 
So, you know, the, the, usually you go through those little villages when you leave the city to go on vacation. And now everything was burning. Everything was into pieces. You couldn't even recognize it. But finally, after a while, I ended up in Croatia. Were you on your own? You yeah. didn't go with either of your parents? No, no, no. I was uh, completely alone. Those years were hell. For a very, very long time, I lived a very difficult life. And there are layers to it. You know, it's really, really complex. It's really complicated. I was still underage. That kind of limited me in many ways. I couldn't do anything, really. It sounds familiar, doesn't it, to yeah. what we're still seeing now? Yeah, this, this, this is the same thing you're going to see in Paris today. So what brought you then to Paris? When did that happen? A decade ago. We came to Paris again without anything, uh, without any knowledge of French language. And I love it. I love I love everything about this city. I know it's horribly expensive. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of that. But when you meet people, when you go to the refugee camp and you meet locals, you meet volunteers, you meet people who became Parisians, you meet people who live in France, you see the diversity and you see the acceptance and you see how powerful the French people are, how very socially aware they are, how kind and generous they are. And this is the place where I want to be. This is the place where I want to stay. This this posh Paris, rich Paris, beautiful Paris with uh, Champs-Élysées and art and culture and everything. And then you have the second side of Paris. And that's where you meet people who are really a treasure of the city and in the worst situation of it. I love that. And it can't have been that long. You started doing this work with refugees and unaccompanied minors in 2015 after you got to Paris a few years that you actually started to then be one of those people, right, in Paris who is really giving back to the community and doing what you can to support the unaccompanied minors or refugees within the city. Can you talk a little bit about that story and how that started? Well, it would be like a little bit of cheating, not really giving back to community, you know. I still identify as a refugee, mm. and that's not my official status, that's my emotional status. Mm. <laughs> when we came to Paris, it was 2012. At one point, I was like walking around Garden Art, because I did, did a lot of walking. I was just like running around trying to absorb the city. I saw this like a little patch under the bridge filled with tents, lined up. And I did not understand why, why are there like 30 tents under the bridge in Paris? <laughs> what is that? So I went there and that's the first time I saw refugees. I was in shock. Those were refugees living under the bridge. I did not know what's happening. I did not know why. And bit by bit, as I started going back to the camps, I got to meet people, I got to hear their stories, I got to meet volunteers. My French was quite bad, but I managed, I managed to understand what's happening. And uh, I kept coming back and bringing little things that I had, like a jumper or some food or something. And that kind of grew because there were other people doing things for refugees, doing helping. And they did it in a such a way that was organized and conscient. It seemed like uh, that was the most normal, like something that's, that's like 
bringing a glass of water or saying hello. They did it so effortlessly that I had to know them. I had to understand what, what, is, what is behind it. That is uh, that Parisian solidarity, that French solidarity, that is, I have never witnessed that. I have never seen refugees being treated like that. Now, we all know that there's a lot of issues with acceptance of refugees. That's the government part. The people and how they react to a refugee crisis. And those are the most generous and most amazing people I've ever seen. And I, I can't compare it to anything else except what I've seen in Croatia or mm -hmm. Slovenia or Italy. But this was like something that really got me. I developed relationships with them, uh, with the volunteers, and I participated more and more in each action, and that's how I got completely sucked in. <laughs> and that's my, how we started doing much more. You know, it started with, uh, with very simple things, and then it developed into mm -hmm. all sorts of actions. I mean, I remember the first time you and I met, and I had that same feeling of just awe and amazement that what you were doing was so it felt so personal that you knew people's names you knew their shoe size you knew what they needed you were like you had literally packages put together like yes I've met someone I know what they need and I've got it in my car and it's for them or I've prepared it for them and it was just such a beautiful way of distribution it wasn't like long queues of people and just like handing out without thinking. It was considered and personal and dignified. I learned that here. Like you give people what they need, what they ask, not what you think they should have. People develop relationship with refugees, even in homeless people on the street. They bring them coffee in the morning. They bring them croissant. They talk to them. But... Uh, I find it incredibly, incredibly important for the society and also very rare from where I come from to have that kind of attitude towards people in distress. I think it's, it's incredible. I think it's amazing. This is why I love this city. It's I mean, it is. It's beautiful. And those personal acts of kindness and that grassroots response that we mm. saw, especially from 2015 onwards, I think, is really beautiful to see. Uh, I think grassroots is one of the most important things that you can do because, first of all, it teaches you to react to a need, not to ideology. When you see a person in distress, you go and help. You don't ask the background of it. You don't consider the geopolitical situation. Or whether it ticks a box or... Yes, or not. You act on, on a need of someone who is in distress. There was one happy event, however. Okay, I want to hear it. So there's Abdul, he's here in Paris. He has a refugee status. He managed to come here. And he had two brothers that got stuck in Istanbul, in Turkey. Okay. So, uh, Afghan? Yes, Afghans, of course. We tried to keep them in Istanbul over the winter. We found uh, even some jobs for them. They didn't want to stay. They went to Bulgaria. They ended up in hospital. They were beaten. Mm. It's always the same story, you know. But after a certain time, they managed to come to Paris. So there was this big reuniting. Abdul and his two brothers, who just came from Turkey, like it was incredible. It was a beautiful, beautiful feeling. It was a beautiful thing that happened. And they're still in Paris. They're here. They're doing, we're working on their 
the Dublin, we are working on their documents. As <laughs> usual. Oh, it gives me goosebumps. There's nothing uh, better than it's family. It's a huge, yeah, it's a huge progress. And then I got to see this little girl that I met. She's not little anymore. I met her when mm. she was 14. She came with her father. Now she's graduating from, uh, from her high school. So she's going to university. With every day you get progress, you see things develop, you think you see things happen and they happen under impossible circumstances. The situations that are you know, like you unimaginable, like they're really, really difficult. And those people prosper after all, and that's what kind of feeds you emotionally, that gives you a spiritual food, that gives you something to continue. That's really lovely. That is my my question to you, right? And that's what I always think about when I think about you is that how do you navigate the emotional aspect? Because, you know, I dip in and out when I come to Paris and I don't build like long-term relationships with people, but I think about people that I've met along the way here. And, you know, we walked up to, um, up to Mama and... I remember sitting on these steps last time I was here with this young Afghan boy who then later told me that his asylum was denied and he was on his own. He was sleeping on the street at the time. He had a little backpack with like one little blanket in it and he must have been 16 or 17 and he was denied his asylum. And I feel that very viscerally still and I, I just take my hat off to you for continuing to show up year after year. Have you had times where you've just been like, I'm, I'm done, I can't do anymore? Emotions are something that happen. You will feel euphoric at one moment, you will, everything is super, and then you will be depressed and sad because something happened. And I get angry as well, because that's who I am. I get angry at people, at situation, at something, because I see a lot of injustice here. Uh, but... Uh, you go through it and you keep on doing it because that's the thing to do, that's the right thing to do. This is not something you can walk away from, but uh, it is very obvious that you have to protect yourself in a certain way. Like, you can't be every day on the camp, you would go insane. You will see and live some very horrible things and they will get to you. But you, you will, you will, you have to learn how to go through it, how to, how to overcome it. There are much more personal challenges, much more inner struggles. You know, when you go to the camp and you have this entire situation, people, especially babies in the tents, and you know, it, it, it's hard to see, it's hard to live, it's hard to, to, to absorb that injustice that's been done to those people, but. It's very clear what's the right thing to do and what's not. It's very clear what's the right reaction to it. Some really beautiful words from Danica there. Finally, let's head back to Greece to hear once more from the lovely Mustafa, who, having fled Syria himself, now works to support unaccompanied minors and refugee youth in Athens with his organisation Velos Youth. Here he is explaining to me his reasons for doing this important work and why the centre that he runs is so game-changing for people living on the street in Athens, just as he himself did when he first arrived. 
When I came, I didn't find anyone to tap on my shoulder and tell me, do you need food? You can't go there. So when I wanted to buy coffee, there's one place where it has a coffee, 50 cents, and the toast, 70 cents. And I was trying to count that's the money I had, it's enough for me to buy that. We're talking about a euro and like 10, 20 cents. But that's how much money I had. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have anything. So I really struggled with that. So I didn't want anyone to go through this journey again. I want everyone to be connected. I want they have a question. They can't find an answer. They can have six hours when they are feeling safe. They can just like go to the kitchen, make tea and drink tea for free. That might sound like very little, but for homeless person, as I have experience and being in the street, a cup of tea, it can be paradise mm -hmm. for me because I cannot even find the free water here. You go to somewhere, you say, can I have water? They might say to you, no. You ask the people, can I use the bathroom? They say to you, no, just only customers. Mm -hmm. But I don't have money to be your customer. And that's how it started. That's why I started working in humanitarian field because no one should, no one ever, even like my enemy, if I have an enemy one day, like should never struggle like this because it's very hard. Literally, I saw like families crying, uh, adults, fathers, mothers, children. People are crying because they just feel miserable. How any human being can turn back toward that? Like you cannot, I cannot do this. How do you think I could leave all of that and just think about myself? And from all this pain and all what's happened with me, that's why I decided to stay here, to be like, I will not let any human being experience this again because it's not okay. It's literally not okay. I feel like when you got to Greece, yeah, you had the choice to either help yourself and find a way to get out of Greece and move forward to another European country or help other people in your squad and the people that were in your community and then subsequently the young people that you support at Velos. What motivates you to choose other people and choose that second option rather than making your own situation better? What I do, it's way more important than just myself. I am just one person and now I'm supporting over 100 young people. But these 100 young men and women, their future would be better. So if I sacrifice one person, which is myself, for 100, like you cannot compare one person to 100. Mm -hmm. And that's why I stay here. You do good, good thing back to you, you know. That's the rule. I believe that wholeheartedly. I really believe that. And I've seen it too, that, you know, what goes around comes around and that what you give, you receive in life. Stop thinking about yourself individually. Start to think about more community, more people. What doesn't matter where we are coming from, doesn't matter what skin color we have. It's what we matter is just like us when we are together where we are individual and everyone checking their bank account. I'm doing it out of love and care because it's the same my experience. So there you go. Using that experience to support those around you. Turning something hugely challenging and negative into something powerful, beautiful and impactful. 
This is the final episode of the journey where we've gone full circle and highlighted just how much we all have to gain from welcoming refugees and asylum seekers into our countries and our lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asylum Speakers, The Journey, brought to you in collaboration with Comic Relief and organisations funded through Comic Relief's Across Borders programme. You can find out how to support Comic Relief's work at comicrelief.com. To find out more about the people in today's show, check out the links in the show notes. Also remember that I'm always open to thoughts and feedback. To get in touch, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and to buy a t-shirt or a hoodie, or you can donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it, share it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one Worldwide Tribe. shout out to alexander wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to ez stone for mixing this episode